Father God, thank you for, for an opportunity to gather in this space this morning, uh, for the sunshine outside, for, um, for the breath in our lungs, and the an ability to, uh, to get up and, and to, to just have another day. God, we just pray that uh, as we approach your word here in a minute, um, as we look at what you have to say to us from the book of Matthew, that you speak to each of us wherever we may be. Uh, rejoice, or to g- encourage those of us that need encouragement, to, con- to know, let us know that you're rejoicing with those of us who are rejoicing. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And ultimately, may we all leave this place a little bit closer to you so we can serve each other well. Amen. All right. So we're about two months into our year-long journey through Matthew. We began it right before Christmas, uh, and then we're going to take this entire year to go through the book of Matthew. Um, and <clears throat> honestly, I, I hope you guys have, have, have loved it. Um, I really have. I think whenever we, you do a deep dive into a particular book, you start to see how many different layers come up. Um, and actually, one of the most exciting things for me, and I, and I mean this genuinely, is, is how many of you, um, because of our journey through this, this book, are wrestling with really, really difficult faith questions. Right, before we dive into the, um, the, the message this morning, I just want to commend you all for that. Um, it's relatively easy in our Christian walk to kind of just go through the motions, just to kind of think shallowly, um, but so many of you haven't been content with that lately, and you're wrestling, you're questioning, you're exploring, uh, which is what faith is all about. Right? is wrestling through those deep and difficult things. Right? Last week I mentioned that in the Old Testament, when God has an opportunity to actually name his nation, he names them Israel, which means wrestles with God. One of the defining characteristics of somebody who follows God is somebody who's willing to wrestle with all of those things, and so many of you are, are doing that. Um, I was so encouraged last week. Um, we, we've been running Alpha on Wednesday nights, um, and those of you who were there, um, I've done... This is probably my 24th session of Alpha, and last Wednesday might have been one of my favorite discussion times ever. It was, a, it was amazing. The questions that were asked were, were so deep and thoughtful and fantastic, and in that space is a place where we can just keep exploring all of these things together, and it, it, it's so, so special. Uh, it takes us from, from what the Bible calls spiritual milk, or simple ideas, which are good, uh, and brings us to this place where we've got to chew on things that are more substantial and meaningful and um, and that's really, really great. And so today, we're going to continue working through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's difficult as we, uh, each week we, we, we move through the Sermon on the Mount, the, the recap section at the beginning gets a little bit harder because the, there's never been a greater sermon in history than the Sermon on the Mount, and each week adds so many layers uh, to what we understand Jesus is doing in this particular section. And I've got to try to wrap them up in 45 seconds before we get started, Right? So I'm going to try. But as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew begins Jesus' preaching career with an extremely important phrase, one that kind of is the, is the linchpin for how we understand the rest. Jesus begins his preaching uh, career with the, with the statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And now we talked about, we've talked about that every single week, that, that so often the word repent itself has all this nasty baggage with it. It's, a, it's an aggressive term to, to make people change the way they're doing things in a, in a judgmental kind of way. But that's not what Jesus is doing at all. He's saying there's a certain way that leads to this heavenly kind of life, that heaven is all around us and we can experience it, but often we're heading in the wrong direction and so we miss it. And so what, re, what Jesus' phrase is, is just asking us to turn from that towards something better. The word repent simply means to turn 
And when we turn towards the way that God wants us to live, we can experience these heavenly things around us. He begins his whole preaching career with that. Then he begins the Sermon on the Mount with an invitation to all people. The Beatitudes are a blessing to each person who says, you think the kingdom isn't for you. You think God might not care about you. Well, he does. You're valuable. He, get, he then gives those valuable people a purpose, all of them, all, us, a purpose. He says, go and share the kingdom life you've been invited into. Be salt, be light, enhance and, ex- and explain things to other people. And then finally, he moves into the place where we've been for the last few weeks with statements of saying there are certain things that we do that usher us into this kind of kingdom life, that help us experience the kingdom that's already all around us, And then there are other things that pull us away from that. And so he says, because you're valuable, put the things that keep you from experiencing the kingdom away and put on the things that bring life. Last week, we specifically did a case study on what that looks like on divorce. It was a tricky topic, right? I hope it was helpful for you. It shows us that sin is complicated, it's nuanced, it's not always easy to see what's what's helping us experience the kingdom and what isn't which is where that wrestling comes in that we've been talking about. Hopefully, I got all of the the recap there. If I didn't, we do have a podcast. You can listen back to all of them and catch up there. But that then brings us to today. Now, before we can actually start again, I'm sorry, we have to dive into one other section, one thing that we've seen Jesus doing through the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does something really interesting. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago and last week as well. Jesus is talking to people who've had faith for a long time, and he's asking them to look at their beliefs and continue to grow. He doesn't let them remain comfortable with their simple understanding of Scripture, so he pushes them to go deeper. We saw the phrase that he uses over and over and over again in that particular message. Jesus starts it with saying, you have heard it said, but I say. Right? Or the example that we gave is the Old Testament says, don't murder. You've heard it say, don't murder which is good. We still don't want to do that, right? But but Jesus goes on to say, but don't stop there. We don't murder people, but but that's not the end of it. it. It's supposed to help us understand that people have inherent value, that we're supposed to see them as human beings. And so then we carry that out to its end by saying, then don't just stop at not murdering people. Don't hate them either. Don't view them as less than a full, valuable person. Now, a lot of you and the conversations that we've been having in this series have noticed so many parallels between Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the modern Christian church. Right? See, the Pharisees in the Old Testament or the New Testament had the whole Bible figured out. They had made it clean cut, they made it easy, simple. And yet, time and time again, Jesus challenges that system, pushes on the edges of it. And what we've noticed is that so often we operate out of the same space as the Pharisees, the space where we want to just keep things simple. Now, I know Jesus has challenged a lot of you in that same way through this series, which is good, and he's going to do that again today. It's it's kind of his thing through the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's going to push back on these established religious structures. And if you don't like that, then it's going to be a hard series all the way through, so the next year will be tough. But we see it again here in Matthew 5. We're going to be in Matthew 5.43 today, which says this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now there's a lot to unpack here. A lot, a lot. And, and some of you might even be caught up on the last phrase here. I think one of the most troubling for many people is verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we're going to get to that. It's going to be part of the whole thing. But, but there's a lot to unpack. Now, every once in a while, I, I realize when I really slow down and take a close look at a passage, it brings up new questions for me that I hadn't thought about before. And that happened this week as well. Right? If I'm honest, I think it's because of the first part of this passage just seems really, really obvious to me, and it didn't take time to really wrestle with it, right? The simple understanding of the first part of this passage is love people and love everyone, right? Uh, even the hard ones to love. That was the simple Sunday school understanding, which I'm on board with. That's true. But, but, it, but we are forced to ask another question when we really take a close look at Jesus' opening statement. It's kind of a weird one because he says, you've heard it said, Hate your enemies. Now, throughout the last few weeks, we've seen him do this same, kind of, this same kind of dynamic. You heard it said, do not murder. That's in the Old Testament. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's in the Old Testament. You've heard it said, don't break your oath. That's also in the Old Testament. And then he opens with this phrase. You've heard it said, hate your enemies. Is that in the Old Testament? Because it's a weird statement. The answer, quick answer, is no, it's not in the Old Testament. There's a lot more going on in this particular passage than just that. The, God, the Old Testament never says hate your enemies. God actually commands, the, 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 the commands that God gives in the Old Testament to care for those who are different than you in the Old Testament is amazingly progressive. And, and it is, it's, it's something that is inviting so many different people into the godly life. So what's going on here? Well, in this particular passage, we have a couple different things that are tricky. Some of them having to do with how we understand language. Right, the Bible's not originally written in English, which you probably could have guessed. It's actually written in three different languages. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. Almost all of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for the first seven chapters of Daniel, which weirdly are written in Aramaic. They're the only place in the entire Bible that's written in Aramaic. Um, if you actually ever want to nerd out on Daniel, let's grab coffee. I, we can't do that today, um, but I got some, a lot of interesting thoughts on that. So the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, the tricky part there is that whenever you move from one language to another, there can be difficulties, right? Um, why? Well, I mean, if we want to, really want to open it up, uh, if we understand what words are, words are symbols that express ideas, right? So if I'm talking about a stage, right? I use the word stage and you understand that it means this thing that I'm standing on. But if I spoke Spanish, the symbol would be different. Jeremy, what's the word for stage in Spanish? My bad, sorry. What is it? Orjoje. There it is. That's, that's what I had written down, so I was glad I was right. That's the scenario, right? I just knew I was going to mispronounce. I was going to mispronounce it, so I didn't want to say it and then have them call me out. <laughs> so, but anyway, espinario it, it conveys the same idea with a different symbol, right? 
the simple understanding of what words are. Words are symbols expressing ideas. Now, often when things are with concrete things, it's really easy. There's easy to, to go between languages, right? Stage, chair, cup have one-to-one -one things. But because language is more complicated than that, different languages sometimes capture different elements of an idea, right? So like the word love, in Greek, there are four words for love. English, there's only one. In Spanish, there are two. It captures different elements of this more con uh, complex, abstract idea. And we have that going on in this passage as well, both in the perfect section and this idea of hate. So, um, so, what, so what is, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is actually quoting, so in both, in this whole section, Jesus is actually quoting back to a part of Scripture. He's quoting back to Leviticus 19. Uh, two different parts of Leviticus 19. The first is Leviticus 19.1. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's the second part of the passage that we looked at. But then he's also quoting from Leviticus 19.18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Now, Jesus flips the order here, but you can see that both of these ideas are present in the passage that we read earlier. Like he's been doing through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, he's helping un people understand what the law is saying. And so he quotes Leviticus 19 twice. First, be holy. Second, love your neighbor. But he seemingly misquotes Leviticus 19.18 because it doesn't say in that passage at all to hate anyone. It just says, love your neighbor. So why does Jesus add this second part? Now, it was interesting, as we started to dive in, into it, realized that modern scholars have actually struggled with that for a long time, trying to figure out what he's doing. Why would he misquote Leviticus 19? But then, one day in 1947, there's some boys were throwing rocks in the nation of Israel near a place called Qumran. They were throwing rocks into caves, and all of a sudden, one of those little rocks they heard a, uh, a vase shatter, and so they went to go and investigate it. And what they found was actually one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in maybe the history of the world. Um, they found what we know now as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of those before? Right? The Dead sea, in, the, in this particular cave, they found copies of every single book in the Old Testament except for one. Uh, which is amazing in and of itself. But they also found scrolls containing the code of conduct for a group of people known as the Essenes, now, they, they, which were interpretations on these Old Testament scriptures, how they understood the Old Testament law and how it should be applied. Now, the Essenes are, are, are mentioned in a number of places in the Bible. And briefly, what the, the kind of the brief overview of what the Essenes were all about is they believed... Um, they had decided that the social and religious life in Jerusalem and Israel were corrupt. So they withdrew from it altogether. They viewed themselves as a community of priests. They viewed themselves also have a very good understanding of how the Old Testament law worked. And in order to do that, they were just going to completely separate themselves from society as a whole. So they kind of lived in their own little um, pods out in the desert. Now, that... <clears throat> So, th so what we saw then in these, these codes of conduct was how they understood Leviticus 19. Because Leviticus 19 um, is, is, is widely understood to be a special group of commands that God gave. It's supposed, to be, it's, it's supposed to be a code of conduct for the Israelite priests. This is how the priests are supposed to function. 
<clears throat> and so, what the, what the Essenes were doing then was understanding Leviticus 19 in this way, be holy, which is the Hebrew word kadosh, which means to separate or to be separate from or different from. They thought the best way to do that was to physically separate from everyone else. That was their understanding. So that when God says, be holy like I am holy, the Essenes said, okay, well, that means then we separate ourselves from everyone else. It was their understanding of the word kadosh. They also understood that, that Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. Nope, lost my train of thought. They didn't understand that, but the rest of, the, the rest of Israel understood that. So the question then we had to ask is, what is a priest? Now God said a priest is someone who's holy, someone who's separate and set apart. To do what? Well, Leviticus 19 says the priests are supposed to do four different things. First, a priest puts God on display. That's why we have all these verses about what a priest is supposed to wear. They wear clothes that help put God on display. They were, they were supposed to draw people to God by making him visible in the way they did their practices. The second thing a priest was supposed to do is help people reconcile themselves to God. They help people make peace with God. They help people understand that they were forgiven, which drove the whole sacrificial system, which, by the way, is different than Zeus. So a lot of ancient cultures had a sacrificial system. If you were Greek, you offered sacrifices to Zeus. If you were Egyptian, to Ra, or to whatever that may be. But the whole purpose of that system was different than it was for the Israelites. For the Israelites, it was to show them that you have, you are, you're made right with God, that you're forgiven, that, that he loves you and cares for you. In the Greek or Egyptian system, you gave sacrifices just so your God wouldn't be mad at you. All right, Zeus likes wine, so you sacrifice wine. Zeus likes steak, like we all do, so you sacrifice a cow, right? So... The, that system was just about appeasing God, whereas God's system was always about reconciling in yourself to the fact that there are broken parts to this world and that God loves you. It's a very different idea. So priests help people do that as well. They help people reconcile to God. Third, they interceded on the behalf of others. P priests would work with groups of people to help restore broken relationships. They were mediators in that way. And finally, they were supposed to distribute resources to those in need. Because God cares for those in need and, and priests help function as then his, his hands and feet in the society, right? They, they represent God to these people by providing for their needs. So they do four things. They put God on display, they help people reconcile to God, they intercede on behalf of others, and they distribute resources to the needy. All of those things can be understood in just basically two ideas. They represent God to the people and they represent the people to God. So then, what happens when we have this group of priests, this Essenes, that moves away from everything and everyone to live in the desert? How in that space are they able to represent God to the rest of the people or vice versa? They say they're doing it to be holy, but Jesus says, no guys, you missed the point entirely here. Now you, now you may be wondering how this all comes together, and there's a lot of information that's true, but let's pull it back together right now. See, what we learned when we found the scrolls in the desert is that Jesus is challenging the Essene understanding of holiness and love for the neighbor. Where, where, did the, where did the statement, hate your enemy, come from? Well, we found it in these scrolls. Now, there's a whole series, if you want to put up the next slide, there's a whole series of a codex on the bottom to identify it. I'm not even going to read that, not that one. I forgot to put a slide of this one. I am killing it today with slides and stuff. Ignore this for now, sorry. 
But there is a codex. This comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it says, He is to teach them both, love, both to love all the children of light and to hate all the children of darkness. Each commiserate with his guilt. They stand in the vengeance of God due to him. So the idea here is the Essenes had put that phrase in, that there are children of light and there are children of dark. You love the children of light, you hate the children of the dark. They created this, this two-part system. The, Essene, the Essenes viewed the world through that lens. There are good people and there are bad people. There are neighbors and there are enemies. With that in mind, then, when we read Jesus' words again, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We see that Jesus is speaking directly back at the Essenes. You say there are children of light, there are good people, and there are children of darkness, bad people. You love one, you hate the other. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, who are God's children? He makes a very direct statement by, uh, he makes a very important point of saying, all of them are. He says, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad. All of them are God's children, and he cares about all of them. In other words, what he's saying to the Essenes is stop separating God's family. You don't get to do that. He's saying there are no enemies. There are only children of the Father. But Jesus goes one step further. He says, be holy, therefore, like God is holy. In other words, not in the way that you think you're being holy. Be holy like God is holy. How is God holy? Well, he sends rain on all of his children. He brings good things to all of his kids. He is holy in that way. And so he's saying, to the, he's saying to the Essenes, he's saying to the rest of us, be holy in that way. Be priests. Be good news to all people just like God does by sending rain on the good and the bad. Now it's interesting to me that even though we've advanced in knowledge in so many different ways, technologically, sociologically, culturally, and yet in so many ways we fall into the exact same traps as they fell into 2,000 years ago. There's a, there's a reason that so many of us struggle with a phrase like, be perfect, like God is perfect. And it's because, unfortunately, we view the world more similarly to the Essenes than we do to Jesus sometimes. We see people as good people and bad people. And so I better make sure I'm good people. I just hope that I might be good enough for God. I think a lot of us have lived our lives functioning in that way at one point or another. If we read the, through the Sermon on the Mount as another list of rules determining whether we're good enough for God, then we aren't hearing Jesus' message. Each week we're seeing that over and over again, and yet so often we act just like the Essenes or, or perhaps another group of people that did similar things, the Zealots. As the Essenes pulled themselves out of society altogether, the Zealots just attacked it. They still were separate from society, but would attack what they saw as bad in, in the particular society. And so often we do the same, don't we? Christians have either pulled themselves out of society as a whole, right? Some, some Sunday morning then becomes a place where you wear your mask. You show up, you look perfect, because if you're not, you might not be welcomed in a space like this. So we make it look different, 
Yet we're just hiding to keep ourselves away from being labeled as children of darkness in the world. That's what we do when we say that certain people aren't welcome here. Even if we say phrases like, you're welcome here if you do these things, that's, that's an Essene kind of thinking, that there are good people and there are bad people. There are certain people that are welcome and certain people that aren't. One of the things we've committed to as a, society, as a group of believers here at Harbor Life is this should be a place that you can belong before you believe all the same things we believe. We're hopefully trying to push back on this Essene understanding of how things work. Or we could go the other way. We've seen this in the last little bit too. We can take on the mantle of a zealot where we feel like we need to fight society, where we need to protect the faith. We need to take back our society, whatever phrasing you would like. Unfortunately, this might be one of the things I've been the most disappointed with general Christian society over the last couple of years. So many Christians have allowed themselves to view those who disagree with them as enemies and so felt justified attacking, name-calling, fighting amongst ourselves. I'd argue you can't read this passage and feel good with that. There's a reason that Facebook is a toxic wasteland, right? It's because of that. Because we've we've viewed the other, those who disagree with us as enemies, and so we feel justified posting a lot of really ridiculous things that are hurtful and offensive and really frustrating to see. If that was you, maybe today's the day to stop. Maybe you'd apologize to those you've hurt or viewed as enemies. See, Jesus is saying in this passage, viewing anyone as an enemy as less than fully loved by God, is not compatible with the kingdom life. It's just not. And then he goes one step further. Jesus, in in this passage, is calling us to be perfect, holy as he is holy. That's one of those translation problems. Perfection in the Old Testament in particular is progressive, which in our minds we like to think of perfection as static, right? You reach perfection and there's nowhere else to go. But right away at the beginning of the, uh, of the Old Testament, we, we see that God created everything perfect and then tells Adam and Eve to make it more perfect. The Hebrew understand of, understanding of perfection is take this beautiful, perfect thing that you have and continue to make it even more perfect, which in the Western mindset doesn't work really well, but it's totally a Hebrew thing uh, to understand. That's the kind of perfection, holiness that God is talking about. What he's saying is he's saying to continue to grow into this space. He's not saying it's a, it's a value kind of thing, but it's a place that we're going to continue to strive to be like God and make good things even better. Essentially what Jesus is saying is it's not enough just not to not be mean to those you don't get along with. He goes, he goes on to say love them. Hope and advocate the best for them. One of the best definitions, running, working definitions that someone gave to me for love and hate. There was a season in my life, I've been a Christian my whole life, and so to ever admit that I hated anyone was a really hard thing. Um, Most of us, I think, feel the same. It feels like a strong word. Until a counselor that I had years back gave me a simple definition for what hate is. He says, do you wish the best for this person? Or do you kind of hope they get what's coming to them? You guys know what I'm talking about? There are certain people where you're like, I, no, I don't actually. If I were to really slow down and think about it, I'm not actually wishing the best for you. I kind of hope that you get what's coming to you. Well, he said that's hatred. 
Because if, you want to, if, if, you're, if you're not wishing the best for someone, you're not loving him, them, and then the opposite of that is, is hatred. With that definition, that was hard for me because that forced me then to admit that I held hatred for certain people. He said the t- same was true for love. So love is, is hoping that someone thrives, that they find the, the, the fullness of life for themselves, even if they've hurt you really, really badly. Which I think, one, makes this passage harder to wrestle with, but two, realizes that we might not be loving as many people as we thought we were. So what this passage does, it says that we, like Israel, have called to be a kingdom of priests. We've called to be holy as God is holy. It's the same purpose that we talked about back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're called to represent God to the world. Now, if you've taken the name Christian for yourself, you're doing that whether you want to or not. When people look at you, when they observe how you live, how you treat other people, they're watching to see what God is like. So often we've seen in this last season is saying, I've heard, talked with people who are questioning the church, looking at some of the terrible things, unfortunately, the, the global American or global or American church have done in the last few seasons and have asked, is that what God is like? It's interesting because that's how they ask. Is that what God is like? And far too often, we have to say, no, it's not. Well, then we're not doing our job right. We're supposed to represent God in each of the things that we do. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, of course, but, but that's what we're striving for. And so this week, I want to challenge you all to ask yourself that question. Am I representing God well today? Am I showing Am I showing the world around me what it looks like to follow Jesus? Am I living in a way that encourages those who don't know him yet to check him out? Like I said, you're not going to do it perfectly. You'll fall short and you'll have a bad day and your value will not change in God's eyes. So we'll, we'll lock that in. But you're striving to represent God to, the, God to the world in the best way that you can. Not because if you don't, he'll zap you or condemn you or something like that, but because we can be good news to someone else who's struggling. Remember, the purpose of the entire Sermon on the Mount is God saying that there is a way we can flourish, that we can, that we can experience the kingdom that's all around us. If you find that, he says, share it. And you do that by living it out the best way you can. So we're called to be priests. We're called to represent God to the world. We're also called to help people reconcile themselves to God. It's amazing how many people in this world feel like they're unlovable or they're searching for some kind of meaning or they're wrestling with some kind of darkness, whatever it might be. And we have the chance to invite them into more, to offer mercy because God offers mercy. We have a chance to declare, like Jesus does, that all people matter and invite them into that kind of life. We mentioned it once already in this service. We, it's, it's commitment to that mission is, the, is one of the foundational commitments that we make as a church body to help people find their way back to God. So this week, who do you know that needs to know that they matter? It can be amazing how just saying that to someone can change the trajectory of their entire day, week, month, who knows, life. Who do you know that needs to know that God loves them and wants them to flourish no matter how many mistakes they've made? There are a lot of people who sit out there and go, I screwed it up too bad. I can't ever come back. The gospel message is that that's absolutely not true. 
How can you help someone find their way back to God this next week? It might be as simple as just a phrase, might be an invitation, could be a lot of different things. We're called to be priests. We're called to represent God to the world. We're called to help people reconcile themselves to God. We're called to intercede on behalf of each other. Right now, this is more needed than maybe it's been in a really, really, really long time. General society right now is not looking, is not one that's looking to reconcile or understand each other right now. We're not seeking to understand those who think and believe differently than we are. We just view them as enemies. Jesus says, be holy and different, that we don't get to view anyone as enemies, even if they disagree with us in pretty substantial ways. He says, work for yourself to understand people who have a different worldview, and then work to facilitate that understanding on a broader level. See, so often, we don't ever take the time to really understand where someone's coming from. If we don't do that, we can't respect them, and that leaves us two options then. I've said it up here before, but I'll say it again. If I don't understand where you're coming from, and I disagree with your position, then the only option is that you're either ignorant or you're evil, right? So what do we try to do first? We try to first say, well, I'm just going to tell you why you're wrong, and then you won't be ignorant anymore, and you'll change your mind, right? I'll put out a 16 Facebook memes, and you'll change your mind, right? We all know how effective those are. But what often happens, if we don't understand each other, is that I'm just going to school you on how to not be ignorant. The person still doesn't change their mind, and then what we're left with then is the only other option is, well, then they're evil, because now they know what should be right and they still don't change their mind. And so we start to view them as enemy, right? That's what we've been doing a lot of lately. What Jesus says is you don't get that option. See, so often when we disagree about something passionately, it's because our hearts resonate with true things. This, is not, this isn't something I haven't said before, so sorry if you get a repeat. So often our hearts resonate with true things, but, the diff, but, the, but because God has made us so different, Sometimes the, our resonances are, 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 we prioritize different things. So something that I might be passionate about is different than something you might be passionate about. Both might be good and holy things, but we prioritize them differently. And sometimes those things come into conflict with each other. So we have disagreements. But what God is inviting us to, though, is to see someone well enough to know what their heart is resonating with. What is the good, true thing that's driving their passion for this particular thing? Because if I understand that, I can respect the person I'm talking to, right? If, I, if, I, if I'm talking with Micah, and I can say he's a good person who's resonating with a good, true thing, and yet the way he applies it I disagree with, which often happens, actually. That's, we debate a lot on that. But you know what I can do, though? I can still leave that conversation respecting Micah. Because I can say, I do believe he's not, I don't think he's ignorant. He's actually really smart, which is sometimes super frustrating when you're arguing with him. He's super smart. I know he's not ignorant, but I also know he's not evil. And, and yeah, we have to wrestle through how we apply this in a good, inappropriate way, but I've taken the time to understand them. What Jesus is saying in this particular passage is that if we take on the moniker of Christian, that's one of our roles, that we don't get to just do the simple, we don't get to, be, to do the simple thing of just declaring anyone who disagrees with me as enemy. He's saying, no, you have to do the hard work to figure them out. And then not only that, you have to do the hard work of helping other people figure each other out. 
So the question then is, this week, the challenge, who is someone you need to understand better? My guess is it's not hard to think of someone. Now, granted, maybe don't start with the hardest person you know, because that can be really frustrating, right? Start with somebody a little simpler. But uh, who do you need to understand better? Is there someone in your life you don't see eye to eye with, and how can you work towards respecting their position even if you disagree with them in the end? How can you this week help someone else understand another person better? How can you work to bring peace? It's one of the things that God calls us to in this passage. And then finally, we're called to be priests. We're called to help represent represent God to people. We're We're called to help people find their way back to God. We're called to help intercede on behalf of each other, to understand each other better. And finally, we're called to distribute resources to those in need. Now, actually, I'll, I'll be honest, this is an area the church has historically done better, than, better on than the other three. But I do want to challenge you this week to go one step further than wherever you might be now. See, we're all in different spots when it comes to caring for those in need. Some of you might not be doing anything right now. And I'm not saying that from a place of judgment. Don't hear that. But maybe this is a week where you take your first step in that area. Perhaps it's, it's, it's praying over where you might give some of your resources to care for those who don't have them. Perhaps it's volunteering for hand-to-hand or serving at downtown mission. I don't know where God might be calling you individually, but I would challenge you to, to, to listen for that this week. Others of you are already doing some of those things. You, you give to organizations that's great, don't stop doing that. But maybe this week you step into being a little bit more hands-on in those spaces. Or maybe you already are hands-on, and that's great too, keep doing that. But maybe this is the week where you get to know the people you're serving more personally. Do you know any of the kids that that use hand-to-hand? They're just shy of 100 of them. Maybe it's a conversation with East or South just to understand what those families are going through. Maybe it's spending some time at Degage or Mel Trotter downtown talking with people who are being served in that way. Whatever it might be, God is calling us into something different there. See, Jesus is masterful in the Sermon on the Mount. He simultaneously affirms our value while inviting us to go deeper, to continue to work towards the heavenly life for yourself and for everyone else around you. And he's doing that again this week. Each of the things that we've looked at, Jesus is saying you are valuable and so is everyone else around you and so let's work together towards this heavenly life. And so hopefully this week, you can find one way to take a step into that deeper space. We're going to reflect on that this morning as we take communion here in just a minute. Because communion represents that particular idea as well. Communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. It's a declaration that we all need Christ in our lives. But it's also a declaration that we need each other too. We each come to the table broken, but we come to the table together. Because each of us has fallen short, each of us has failed in one way or another, and so communion is a reminder that failure doesn't define us in Christ. Communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin isn't our master. Communion is is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm our acceptance of this gift in our lives. And so the table this morning is open to anyone who wants to do that this morning. So in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Uh, You can grab a tray. uh, You can either take it for yourself or you can take it to split with a family. Then bring it back to your seats. 
And then, then reflect on what we talked about today. Maybe think about one of those areas where you can take your next step before you do communion. And so I want to invite those of you who've chosen to follow Jesus or want to make that choice for the first time today. If you don't want to make that, that's fine. Feel free to stay in your seat. Because at the table, Jesus makes the declaration that there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, as God's holy people, as God's kingdom of priests that are holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke 22, 14-20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat the Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you, and I won't eat this meal again until its meaning has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks to God for it. <clears throat> he says, take this and share it amongst yourselves for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He then took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. When you eat it, Remember me. Likewise, he took the cup. He says, this is a sign of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. When you take it, realize that your value is full in me. And remember me. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, you've charged us to be priests in this world, to represent you to the world around us. Lord, may we be people whose lives show what it means to follow you in a full and glorious way. God, may we be people who help others find their way into that same space, people that, that work to understand each other, to reconcile ourselves to one another, to work to respect each other even in our differences, that though we may not see everything the same way, we stay unified under your headship. Finally, may we be people who care for those in need in big and meaningful ways. God, as we come to the table, help us remember how much you love each of us, that you give yourself for us to give us a new and fresh start every day and challenge us to live that out in each and every aspect of our lives. Amen.